and welcome to the Bent Biblios podcast. I'm Tegan. And I'm Ashley. Today we have a very special guest, one of our favorite horror authors. We are here today with Rachel Harrison, author of the novels The Return, which was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a First Novel, and her book Cackle. Rachel, welcome. We're so excited to have you here with us today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Before we begin chatting about Cackle, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I contain multitudes. No, I'm kidding. Um, I am a writer who grew up in New Jersey. I went to Emerson College in Boston and I studied screenwriting. I spent my 20s running around New York City and I recently moved to Western New York and I'm just up here writing and caffeinating and (laughs) taking it day by day like everybody else. I also contain multitudes. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> don't we all? Don't yeah. We all? <laughs> I'm like an onion. <laughs> when did your love of reading begin? And what are some of the books that have had the biggest impact on you throughout your life? So I was always very into stories as a kid, reading, writing, movies, just kind of obsessed. And I think the book that I first remember feeling like it really impacted me or affected me was, um, and this is going to get eye rolls, but Catcher in the Rye, I, I just really connected to it. And I, at that age, just to have to read something and be like, oh, this character is feeling what I'm feeling. That was a big light bulb read for me. Um, same with the bell jar, uh, which if you're catching on, I was a very angsty teen. Um, and Shirley Jackson, her short story, The Lottery, um, blew my mind. And then subsequently Hill House, Beloved by Toni Morrison, The Virgin Suicides. Those were the books kind of when I was a teenager. That's kind of when my like true love of reading began beyond just, you know, being a kid and getting stories before bed. I only recently read anything by Shirley Jackson and I did read The Lottery and I was like, wow. Wow. And you just start looking around like, is there anybody I can talk to about this? Like (laughs) immediately. (laughs) It's so good. And what's so interesting to me about that story is I, if you, when you go into it and you don't know what to expect and I didn't know what to expect, it just blows your mind and changes. (laughs) Like it's not what you're expecting. And I just imagine when it was first published, because I know she got like a bunch of like angry letters just imagine like there was no spoilers or whatever out there and just thinking it's like a small town story and whenever it was published in the fifties or sixties and, and then just having that ending, <laughs> like just so gutsy, such gutsy writing. Yeah. yeah like uh, there was no good reads then. So there was no, <laughs> no online reviews yeah. and I'm lucky I didn't read anything before, so I had no idea what was going to happen or what the lottery was about. So that was good because I'm glad I didn't. Um, So Ashley, have you read it? I have not read the lottery, um, but Hill House I read and loved. And um, what's the title with Mary Cat? We have always lived in the castle. Yes. Yeah, I really, really loved that one. Yes. So when did you know that you wanted to write and become an author? I didn't really consider writing 
as a career path until I got to college. I, I showed up as a marketing major and I was like in my dorm room, like for fun, writing a screenplay one night. And I was like, why am I a marketing major? Um, so I switched my major to screenwriting and I was thinking I would pursue that. And then um, in my mid twenties, I kind of switched to writing prose and that's how I got here. Well, I'm very glad that you did make this switch and that you did decide to write because Cackle is one of my favorite books. So I read Cackle last October and it was actually one of my favorite books of 2021. And I just finished rereading it again to prepare for this chat, but I actually listened to the audiobook this time around. The narrator is phenomenal. Just yes. brings Sophie and Annie to life. I just, I loved that audiobook. Um, so it's fun, creepy, feminist, and it is a love story to friendship and to oneself. Where did the inspiration for this story come from? <laughs> like, like the majority of art, I think it stemmed from bitterness. <laughs> um, uh, wanting to write a story that I could have used when I was younger. It's kind of my vendetta against the Disney movies that brainwashed me as a youth. Um, I'd kind of grown up drinking that Disney Kool-Aid of, you know, happy ending and true love. And this that's how you're going to find happiness if you marry the prince. And um, that fairy tale quickly unraveled in real life. And I wanted to explore, like, have all of the, like, magical elements of a fairy tale, um, but keep it modern and relatable and deliver themes that I could get behind and that I wish, the lessons I wish I'd learned sooner. Right. That actually leads right into our next question. So there's a lot of exploration throughout the novel of how one should feel in a relationship. And I really enjoyed that and also found it important Many people can relate to not fully being themselves or sacrificing something to be in a relationship, whether platonic or romantic. And I think conversations around that are integral. You touched on it a little bit, but why did you wish to explore this throughout the novel? And when do you feel compromise becomes sacrifice? I think it's really important to know yourself and be able to understand yourself and put yourself first. And kind of, there's like, a necessary selfishness in any relationship where a kind of oxygen mask on you first that I think especially women are kind of shamed to not do. And I think that's really important. And for compromise and sacrifice, again, it's just knowing what you feel comfortable with and knowing your own values and how, and knowing how to communicate and ask for what you need and, and set boundaries and say, I'm good with this. I'm not good with this. And, um, having that open communication in any relationship, friendship, you know, with your family, with your partner, um, that's so important. And I think if you don't really know yourself and what's good with you, it's way easier to get in over your head because you're just going to kind of take whatever that other person puts on you and not know how you feel about it really. And that, that's, that's a little dangerous. Yeah, definitely. Like I've had, um, friendships or relationships where um, you don't always realize it until later you think about it and go, I don't feel like what I did was respecting myself or I feel less myself when I'm with this person or <laughs> things like that. The choices you make can incrementally make you feel less yourself. And I really liked how you explored the emotional trauma um, that she's processing during the novel. So 
Annie is kind of realizing throughout the novel that some of the trauma she's had centers around the way men, specifically her father and her ex, have made her feel insignificant. As Annie notes about her father, he wasn't stern or unfriendly. He mostly didn't know what to do with me or what to say. In her day-to-day, there were no huge betrayals by them, such as abuse or infidelity, but many examples of the small ways people can incrementally make us feel diminished. Why was it important for you to portray trauma in this way? The death by a thousand little cuts. Um, I think little wounds are easier to dismiss, but that damage accumulates over time. I think we all experience it. It comes from everywhere, and it's important. It's important to recognize it because I think it affects us more than we realize. And sometimes this type of damage comes from the people who are closest to us, who might not even realize that they are doing it. It's like very stealthy. And I think everybody kind of needs to pay attention, especially because when you get close to people, like sometimes, you know, girlfriends can say things to each other and it's like, hey, that hurt my feelings. And then not, not maybe not realize it until like <laughs> 24 hours later or not like or maybe years later and, and then not feel empowered to say something about it. Like, Hey, you said this thing to me and it really bothered me. And I think people should be empowered to say that those things. Um, but it's trickier to stand up for yourself or to clock those um, little cuts. If you don't have a solid foundation with yourself and for Annie, this book is kind of her learning to love herself. That's kind of the arc she takes. And so she, throughout this book, she kind of needed to learn that that, like she had been accepting things she shouldn't have accepted. Um, and I, I think that's something important and something we don't really talk about enough or don't feel empowered to ask for what we need in a lot of those situations. Um, so it was important for me to address just because of the subject matter of Cackle. Yeah. And I, I'm thinking on what you were talking about earlier with Disney and usually the, the female characters are about making other people happy and not ruffling feathers and being this gentle, kind creature, but it's sometimes kindness. You have to be kind to yourself too. And it's not always about making <laughs> the world happier it's about also what do I need um, for my happiness as well so when Annie is discussing moving to a small town her friend Nadia mentions romance movie tropes envisioning Annie meeting some brooding lumberjack named Lucian who has a six-pack first what are some of your favorite romance tropes and secondly what tropes were important for you to subvert or play with in this novel I am a big sucker for a will they, won't they <laughs> trope. I love it every time, every time I go for it. Um, and I really like, like the um, like bickering passion, like like a very like Han and Leia vibe. I, I love that. Um, to me, it was important in this book to like not have any romance, but I did throw Oscar in there as a bit of a red herring. Like if this was a different book, she'd end up with the like handsome, you know, Luke Danes and they, he'd save her from the Wicked Witch. Um, this book isn't that, 
but he was kind of a nod to like, you know, things could go in that direction, but that's not the story I'm trying to tell. I love the grumpy sunshine trope too, where there's that banter and you gotta, I'm, I'm always the cranky one. I'm the grumpy one. <laughs> there's a line at the beginning of the book, one of many that made me laugh out loud. I've been driving around in silence like a serial killer because every song that comes on feels like a bad omen, either too sad or too optimistic. First, who drives around in silence? And second, what does your ideal road trip soundtrack have on it? I'm sure at some time, at some point in my life, I've driven in silence, like in my feelings, just like in silence. Um, Ideal road trip, probably for like a long road trip, probably nostalgia tunes, like, um, you know, early 2000s emo music or um, like 90s roller rink jams, like Another Night by The Real McCoy or like stuff like that. Um, I like, if it's a road trip, you want to keep, I like want to keep it fun. I wouldn't listen to like my normal playlists on a road trip. I'd want to like hype myself up. Yeah. I like that older music too. Not older music. We were actually talking about this um, on another episode where we were talking about Nancy Drew and I love Nancy Drew. And I went to the bookstore and they had redone the original covers and it said vintage on it. (laughs) Not vintage yet. Like, so older music, it's not older music. But when I was in high school, I went to Edge Fest and it was like Blink-182, Sum 41, all of the Avril Lavigne, all of those things. So yeah, I totally feel you on the nostalgic, fun music. Did you see they're like, so like My Chemical Romance and like, they're like having this like big concert in Vegas and it's called When We Were Young. And I was like, like clutching my pearls like what do you this was all the music I listened to in high school what are you talking about when we were young are we old now right I I also used to go see my chemical romance and the used and I'm like tasty yes (laughs) it was that's what I would see and I think was that just the one tour because I know I saw them twice I can't remember I, I went to see them once uh, I, I went to that tour. I forget what year it was, maybe 2006, 2005. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> but I keep seeing the fashions because where I work, I am around like 18 to 22 year olds all the time. So that always makes me feel old immediately. Um, but uh, they're starting to wear the trends of like, Alanis Morissette and and those sort of like no doubt I'm like oh I'm seeing them wear the platform sneakers that Spice Girls and like wearing the tank top dress over the t-shirt and I'm like oh no and they're calling it vintage and I'm like no no." that's that I'm not cool (laughs) like it's very retro no (laughs) butterfly clips being like this is vintage (laughs) oh dear (laughs) So at the beginning of Cackle, Annie mentions that if it wasn't for Nadia taking her out, she'd be sitting at home alone on my birthday. My alternate plan was to cry in the fetal position while listening to Landslide on repeat. This part made me think about my go-to comfort music or movies when I'm having a rough time. If you had the ultimate comfort night in, what would you need for music, film, and food? Um, I'm a big fan of a comfort night in. <laughs> I love a night in. <laughs> Music, maybe like Fiona Apple for comfort. Um, food, it would be junk food, just like the most garbagey food you could imagine. If I was like sad on a comfort night in, if I needed like, if I was 
like I need this comfort night and because I need to like cry in the fetal position. Um, I'm going ginger ale and craft mac and cheese. That's like, if I'm, if things are dire, if I'm in a bad way, like my husband knows like craft mac and cheese or ginger, or if he comes out and I've gone and bought those things, he's like, Oh shoot. (laughs) Just not going to talk to her. Keep a comfortable difference distance. Um, but yeah. And then it was movie, right? Movie, movie would be Little Miss Sunshine. That's a good comfort movie. That'd be my comfort pick. For comfort food, I I grew into a dairy allergy uh, when I was in high school. So I remember what everything tastes like. And one of my favorite things was a Fry Supreme from Taco Bell. And recently, like a couple of weeks ago, I found this finally after trying so many, a recipe for vegan queso that tastes amazing. And I think that I have honestly eaten like the last 20 years worth of fries supreme in the last, you know, a couple weeks. So that's my comfort food. I'm glad I found the dupe, but you have to send me the, I would be interested in some vegan queso. Yeah. Queso also, form, really. <laughs> yeah. It's really easy. And it is the only way it like, it has the consistency of queso and it tastes mm-hmm. so good. So I'll definitely send that to you. Yeah. I'm intrigued. So Sophie's home feels otherworldly and beautiful. And it's definitely a place that I would not mind living. And just think of how quiet it is. Is her home based on a real place? So it's when I was younger, when I was like 12, um, I went on a like family trip to uh, Newport, Rhode Island with all the Gilded Age mansions. And I, like again, being young and impressionable, I was like, ah, oh, this was the life I was meant for. Um, so I've always been obsessed with like, the breakers, um, and also, uh, the Biltmore mansion. And there's, a, there's an Instagram and I meant to get the handle, but I didn't, I think it's called mansions of the Gilded age. I think that's just what it's called. And it's just an Instagram that has pictures of Gilded age mansions. And I kind of would, would look at that when I was designing her house. <laughs> As Ashley mentioned, Sophie's home sounds fantastic. If you could live in any house from any novel, which one would it be and why? I've been reading too much horror. So I feel like I can't answer this because every like house in every setting is like, you could live here, but it's haunted or you could live here or you're going to get murdered. Um, given the state of the housing market, maybe like fine, I'd be cool with it. Like I'll take Hill House. <laughs> if you're going to give it to me, <laughs> I can afford it. Um, real estate in Dairy, Maine. Sure. Like I will move next to Pennywise uh, if I can afford that mortgage. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I read too much horror. It's hard for me to say. Uh, I need to like start reading other novels <laughs> that where the houses aren't full of demons. <laughs> Maybe I could answer I feel your pain on the housing market and the costs. It's definitely that here in Ontario, but I feel like the horror novels. Yes, you're right. I wouldn't like the ghosts or like the murderers that go along with it, but some of those Gothic mansions and like the manors, I mean, they're just beautiful. (laughs) It's a trade-off, you know, it's like, there's like evil moaning every night, but some earplugs might be livable. Right. (laughs) So Annie first meets Sophie at Simple Spirits, a wine and liquor store. Annie says that she knows nothing about wine except how to drink it. I have a two-part question for you. Where do you fall on the wine knowledge spectrum? And what wine do you think would pair perfectly with this novel? So Annie's line is basically me being like, I don't know anything about it except how to drink it. I prefer red. So 
maybe for cackle, like a Malbec, but really if I'm offered wine, I will drink it. And I think most wines would pair. It depends on the season you want to read cackle. If you want to read it in the spring, maybe outside with the Sauvignon Blanc in the summer, poolside glass of rosé, sparkling rosé, and in the fall and winter, a red. That, that was more than I thought I could pull out of my hat for a wine question. <laughs> I think we're going to have to pose that question to our listeners, Tegan. What wine, if you've read Cackle and then, or after you read it, what wine do you think would pair perfectly with this book? I always, um, personally, I don't really know a lot about wine either. So I always do my dad's trick. If I'm buying like someone a bottle of wine or myself, I'm trying to try something new. I go to the vintages section and I pretend that I know, but I always grab the one that's on sale though. (laughs) That is smart. (laughs) I just go to the back corner. I'm like, Ooh, what's in the back corner on sale. And then usually it's good. Sometimes I go, okay, maybe this is acquired. Maybe I'm not experienced enough for this one, but Uh, Yeah, I don't drink a lot of wine just because I get headaches from it. So I'm not the best person to. So we will have to pose the question to our listeners, Ashley. (laughs) As Annie is unpacking, she mentions putting her books on the shelves, first arranging them alphabetically, only to change her mind and rearrange by color, and then again by which books she thinks would be friends. How do you personally like to display your books at home? This is the the book display question, I got like a lot of messages and people really responded to that, Um, which I almost cut the part about them being friends and then I added it back. So I'm glad I did Um, because that's kind of how I arrange my books. I sort of am like, these are similar themes. I want to put these ones together because they have a similar vibe, like that kind of, I'm about to, to move. So when I, when I'm unpacking, we'll see what I decide to do, but I think it's probably going to be the same thing by theme and which ones I think get along on the shelf. I kind of do the same thing. It's definitely not alphabetical, but more like the friendship books where it's, these are similar, but then also it's more of a functional thing for me where I have the ones that are really like expensive up very high where my kids and my cats cannot get to them. Um, cause I had this, I have a really nice full set of these old Dickens novels that my dad got me and I had them on a lower shelf before. And one of my cats started chewing on them. Yeah. So we, had, we in our old apartment, we had to buy like plastic partitions to put over the shelves. I'll never forget. <laughs> there was one night we woke from sleep and because there was like the sound of ripping and I was still half asleep but I heard my husband get out of bed and I just hear oh no (laughs) and I I remember waking up to that and just being like what happened and I come out my cat had eaten throwback to like my like high school copy of Catcher in the Rye (laughs) that's like super (laughs) sentimental my cat knew that was the one she went for. And then my, my copy of um, collected stories by Amy Hempel, which was my favorite book in college that like my best friend gave to me and has annotated. And yeah, those two, she was like <laughs> midnight assassin. 
I'll just never forget waking up and hearing, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they have some instincts. It's like they know when you've just cleaned somewhere and they're like, oh, I'll just go have a little hairball mess right on this floor that you just washed. And this is important to you, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I will try it. I'll give it a taste. (laughs) So there are so many funny parts in the novel. I love when Annie visits a fortune teller and notices that above the crystal ball, there's another neon sign on but barely functioning, sputtering and pale, that reads psychic. It's literally a bad sign. What novels have made you laugh out loud too? So I recently read a book that's coming out August, I think. It's called Suburban Hell by Maureen Kilmer. Um, It's a super fun, hilarious horror comedy about a group of... um, young moms who live in the suburb and one of them becomes possessed by a demon. Um, It's really funny. I highly recommend that book. And then this isn't a novel. She writes essays, but anything by Samantha Irby, I just think she's hysterical. Um, So those two authors get me laughing. We'll have to add that book to our, our TV. I think you'll really like it. Yeah. So I laughed and related to the part in the novel where Annie is thinking about Sophie, reflecting that I need this friendship to work, mostly because she's warm and funny and I love her, but also I need to know what products she uses. I can feel the pain in this myself (laughs) now. So if Sophie were real, what would her go-to beauty or skincare products be? I feel like what are like all these celebrities use now? It's like August Stinius. Bader. I don't know what it is. It's like a blue bottle. And they're all like, it's like a miracle cream. It's like $320 a bottle or like La Mer where it's like, they tell you they use this and you're just like, that's not useful information for me as a regular person. Like I can't afford to use that. Um, and there's also those other celebrities who are just like, oh, I have good jeans. I splash my face with water and I shine with the glow of a thousand suns. Um, which I think there's more truth to them just being like, I have good genes. It's like, I'm never going to look like I'm going to age. Like I'm going to look like a raisin by the time I'm 40. So like, I'm, I can't aspire to be like Gwen Stefani or whatever, who's like mortal. Um, but they're, they're probably all using Botox. Anyway, <laughs> I feel like Sophie would be probably just like, yeah. Oh, I don't know that I use. I just <laughs> like, I use regular cream and for some reason on me, it's, it's a miracle worker. Yeah. I, this brings me back to when, um, before my first and I was pregnant and I was trying to figure out what cream would, you know, keep away stretch marks on my stomach. And then I read in one book, it was like, there is no cream, yeah. like it's genetics. <laughs> I was okay. Yeah. It's brutally honest, but at least I know, like, if I'm putting on my belly, like, it's just for comfort. It's not going to do anything. Yeah, it's it's tough because I feel like I would rather someone just like one of the celebrities or whoever just be honest and be like, I don't know, I lucked out because if they're trying to sell you like, oh, I use La Mer and like I start using La Mer, I'm wasting like you know, thousands of dollars over my lifetime buying this cream that really isn't going to do for me. Like, it's not going to make me look like Kate Beckinsale. Like it's just not. So I might as well like 
save my money and go on vacation where I can bake in the sun and look like Gary Oldman and Dracula and like die happy. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I feel that so much. I was the person for years that did spend an exorbitant amount of money on things trying to, you know, yeah. keep my youth. And now I'm just like, all right, I just have to accept it. I'm gonna yeah. accept- it's not always easy, but I'm like, okay. <laughs> I think I started so like lately I've started because I've really I'm very self-conscious and I've struggled along I'm very much like Annie but lately I just like sometimes I'll see something that'll be like this is gonna like lift whatever and I've started to ask myself why like why do I need to lift this thing will it bring me any happiness if I am lifted or am I just doing it because somebody is telling me I should And if I can kind of separate that, we'll see how long that lasts. And like some, I'll have a moment where I'll be like, I don't care. Give me, like, I'll take my crow's feet. And then I'll like, a week will pass and I'll look in the mirror and be like, oh my God, no. (laughs) So we'll see. I shouldn't preach because it's very fickle. Same. Other days I'm like, I don't care. And then then I get a photo of myself and I'm like, why didn't I, anyone tell me? Yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> depends. Depends yeah. on the day. <laughs> so we have to talk about Ralph for a moment. He is so cute. He's a sentient spider who is a companion to Sophie and Annie in the novel. I used to want a pet spider after reading Charlotte's Web. If you had a choice, what companion would you pick if you were a witch? Just kind of put earmuffs on my cat for a second while I say probably a dog. Um, I really, I like walk a lot and I feel like people think I'm, cause I used to live in Brooklyn and um, after I left Brooklyn, I still walk everywhere, but walking in like a smaller city is not uh, <laughs> like people think you're weird, I guess. Like, I don't know. I've had people be like, I've seen you walking or you walked all the way here. And to me, it doesn't feel strange. Um, but if I, I think if I had a dog with me, they'd be like, I'd just be like, oh, I'm walking a dog. And they'd be like, okay. Instead of me just like stalking around town, <laughs> my like walking shoes. So yeah, I wouldn't want a, want a friendly dog companion who would walk with me. So I don't really mind um, looking odd. And in that vein, Tegan actually, so I'm a crazy cat mom. I love my cat. It's my child. He is perfect. So she bought me a, like a cat stroller and I will walk him wherever. And people are like, Oh, is that a baby? I'm like, no, (laughs) it's my furry baby. It's my fur, you know, it's my cat. And uh, yes, you do get some funny looks, but I do. I walk my cat. You should, you need a stroller. I don't think she would. I took her outside. She was so hyperactive. We got her a leash at one point. We'll try taking her outside. We took her outside. She was like, terrified so she just likes to she's like an indoor terror you take her outside she's too scared so I don't I think in a stroller she would just cry the whole time so while we're on the subject of children while reflecting on the subject of having children Sophie says I've never had the desire I suppose it's made me a pariah especially in my youth It was expected and I shunned the expectation. They say things are better now, that society is more accepting if you don't want to become a mother. I'm not sure if I find that to be true. Either you want babies or if you don't, you want to eat them. As a woman who is childless by choice, I can relate to what Sophie is saying. 
Why do you think that it is still not widely accepted? And do you think that society is getting better with it? I like to think it is getting better. I mean, every once in a while, I'll like see a tweet that's like, women are selfish, like a retweet from somebody I don't follow who's like, people are selfish for not having children. And I'm just like, it doesn't, that doesn't really bother me. Um, People still assume. I think the assumptions bother me more. I remember just, you know, the other day I was in, we're talking about moving and they're like, oh yeah, you have more space for when you have kids. It's like, you don't want to, like, I would never, I don't care because like it's a choice, but like some people can't have children and it's sensitive. And I, I just think it's wrong to, to kind of speak that way. And, but I, I think it is getting better. I would like to think there's still people who have antiquated ideas and, you know, teach their own. And for me, it, that's not something that gets under my skin too much because it is a choice. And, you know, I just worry for other people when I hear it. 100% because you're right. Some people like for, for myself, it is a choice, but for a lot of people, it's not. And when you pry, you don't know how raw or close to the surface that wound is. And it used to bother me a lot more. I've been married for 11 years now. I used to bother me a lot more in the beginning, but yeah. then I just kind of started accepting, accepting it. Yeah. Like I'm okay with it. My husband's okay with it. So it doesn't really matter if other people are okay with it. Yeah. So talking about acceptance, that's another thing that is really explored throughout the book, acceptance of both oneself and of others. Sophie is afraid that Annie will not accept her anymore. If she finds out her secret, Annie has a hard time accepting herself. At the end of the day, all any of us want is acceptance. What advice would you give to people wanting to be more accepting either of themselves or of others? I do not feel qualified to give advice about anything because <laughs> I'm, you know, flailing and learning. Um, but I think for me, there was a big shift in my life and my personal growth and development when in my mid twenties, I learned kind of how to accept my flaws and mistakes. Um, I used to be really sensitive and, you know, if somebody had criticized me, I would break down and be so upset. And then as I got older, I was like, well, I I feel more secure. And I know that like, I want to be the best version of myself. And if I make a mistake, being able to be like, I'm I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Or like, it doesn't make you a bad person. Like everybody puts their foot in their mouth or everybody, you know, you know, like, oh, I should have invited you to this, or I'm, you know, I, I shouldn't have been late or just things like that to be able to say, I'm sorry and be okay with making mistakes. Um, that helped being able to accept the parts about me that aren't great or could use work was a huge, it made change my whole life because I could you know, if I wasn't being mean to myself or beating myself up, I could accept and acknowledge things and go on and become a better person. And, and also just not being, I think it, the root of it is probably fear. Like I had previously been afraid to confront the parts about myself. I didn't like once I got over that fear and like, didn't approach myself or my relationships from a place of being fearful, um, that was a huge thing for me. So I don't know what advice I could give for everybody in self-acceptance, but um, that was kind of my own personal journey and shift. And I think it's, it's work. It's an everyday thing. It's not something 
I think that comes naturally to, to most of us. I think most of us struggle to accept ourselves, but the better you get at accepting yourself, the more understanding you're going to be and more accepting you're going to be of others. Definitely. I struggle with it a lot because I hate to fail at things. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So I've had to realize um, that if I'm not expecting that out of other people, like perfection, why am I expecting that of myself? And then I'm in management positions in my day job. And, and so one point I had someone ask me, um, why are you so afraid of making a mistake? And, and she says, you know, like you're sending that message out to the universe. You're, you're making other people feel like maybe they can't make a mistake either. And I'm like, oh, so it's like (laughs) a larger thing. It kind of, it's like you say, it starts from yourself and then it spreads out and, but it's hard. A fellow perfectionist. I'm a Virgo. So I I feel you on that. (laughs) (laughs) So at one point in the book, Sophie questions Annie's need for love and for someone to want her asking, why are you seeking that outside of yourself? Importantly, Sophie notes the difference between love and validation. I think most of us struggle with seeking validation outside of ourselves and confusing validation from others as love. What do you think is the difference between love and validation? And what does love mean to you? Validation is something that is given and love is something that is shared. Um, I think love involves validation, but validation doesn't require love. That's a big question. I might need to ruminate on that with my therapist. I do think they're different, but it's such like... (laughs) Like I need to like, again, go for like a long walk in a field, uh, picking flowers and contemplating that one. (laughs) We do always love to throw in a stumper. (laughs) Yeah. That's, I mean, it's a beautiful question. Um, but it's, it's a, that's a big, that's like a big life question. It is. So Annie loves new years and I do too. Like she says, there's something about a fresh start. And I also love the beginning of a new season. In the novel, she celebrates by making flower crowns, enjoying delicious food, and writing resolutions. Do you have any rituals or traditions that you like to do to mark the beginning of a new year or season? So New Year's, I'm a big Twilight Zone marathon. Um, I do that every year. And I, I'm, I'm very, like, new month, new season. Like, I always will, like, do a tarot reading or, like, look up my horoscope. Um, and if the readings are good then I'm like this is obviously going to come true and if it's bad I'm like "Mm, the stars are a little off this month Um, but yeah I like a new fresh start I I think you know it's a healthy way of thinking if you know you have a bad month be like I'm gonna put this month behind me because you know it's going to be April and then I can start new I think I like I like doing that Annie in that way Yes. One of the things I love is like a fresh notebook or a fresh planner. And obviously those listening aren't going to be able to see, but behind me, I have an exorbitant amount of tarot Uh, decks. I love them. And I love doing a reading. Um, And like you, if it's on point, I'm like, okay, I got this. And if it's not like, I know it's been 10 years, but I'm still learning. So I'm probably wrong. (laughs) The tower card. Oh, I picked this one by accident. I'm just going to slip this right back into the deck and we're going to forget that ever happened. And Oh, 
now we have the ace of wands yes and this is more like it <laughs> exactly my foundation or my foundation does not need to be rocked today we're good, yeah. we're good. <laughs> so on speaking to self-love and acceptance and things that we do for ourselves Sophie says it's a nice thing to cook for yourself, to be good to yourself, to commit to and feed your own happiness. So many of us, I feel, forget to do this. There's magic in taking care of oneself. Why do you feel it is so important? And how do you feed your own happiness? I think it goes back to, again, putting oxygen mask on yourself first. Um, and I, I, I said this earlier, but I think um, women in particular are raised to kind of you're like, you're a carer, you're a nurturer, you're supposed to take care of people outside yourself. And um, it's, it's more known now, but I think, you know, when I was growing up, nobody was like, do something that makes you feel good. Um, and for me, I discovered in my early twenties that it's really, really important for me to exercise. If it's go for a walk, you know, take a spin class, something like that to just move. Um, I'm, a very, very anxious person. And I, if I don't move, if I just sit on the couch, I just, all my anxiety like fills me up and weighs me down and I, I, it's not good for me. So I think it's important for everyone to discover like one thing that they can do to make themselves feel good. Uh, You know, if you, every morning you want to wake up early and have your coffee alone in like a little nook of your house. If that's what you need to do to help you get through the day, do it <laughs> and make it. And don't feel guilty about saying like, I need this time. And, you know, maybe you have roommates. I need this. I need to be in this area at this time and sit in the window and like, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> like, I think being able to like guard your self-care practices or whatever, that's very important and not feel guilty about asking for it because it's a need. It's a basic need taking care of yourself. Yes, I feel that I I have generalized anxiety disorder. So I need quiet time in the morning alone to be able to like make the space in my mind to be able to deal with the things that come up. And I find if I do skip that, nobody has a good (laughs) game over for everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I do have that early coffee. I get up a bit earlier than really necessary just so that I can sit before anyone else in my household wakes up and I can just start waking up without anyone talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) Key, no one talked to me. (laughs) So while thinking about her mother's early death, Annie reflects that narratives change when someone dies, especially young and tragically. Their history transforms. It transcends reality into something more romantic. However, this transformation makes Annie feel more disconnected from her mother, and she wishes that someone would tell her about all the ways she was human, about her struggles and her suffering. Bit of a morbid question. (laughs) What are the human things about you that you would want loved ones to remember if you were gone? I don't mind morbid. Um, (laughs) I joke with my best friend that I want like a huge buffet at my funeral, And for there to be a sign that says, enjoy the spread, you know, I would, (laughs) I would want people to remember me as the lowbrow slob that I am. Like, remember me as I was in leggings and a stained t-shirt 
drinking a Powerade and eating chocolate covered raisins as a meal. Like that's how I want to be remembered. Don't remember me when I looked nice because that is like 5% of the time, maybe remember me on the couch. Like there is something in my teeth and I'm happy (laughs) and authentically myself. I love that so much. So there's a line in the book that really struck a chord with me. What is it about a woman in full control of herself that is so utterly frightening? I now pose that question to you. What are your thoughts and how do you think that fear of strong women still affects us today? I mean, we still live in a patriarchal society. So, um, and I think for everybody, it's very human to be afraid of change. And we see it all the time. And powerful women challenge the status quo. And that's scary to people. (laughs) Um, But, you know, change is inevitable, which is all I'll say about that. That, again, is probably its full own episode. There's a lot to unpack (laughs) that. (laughs) So you have a new book coming out October 4th of this year, and I'm so excited. It is called Such Sharp Teeth. Are you able to tell us anything about it? Yes, yes, it's my love. I'm very, very excited for this book to come out. It's very special to me. It's my werewolf book. Um, it's sort of like Ginger Snaps meets Fleabag. Um, my protagonist is Rory. She is fiercely independent, living her best life. Um, when her twin sister asks her to return home to be with her, and when she gets back to her hometown where she doesn't really want to be. She runs into um, an ex almost love. um, And that sort of sparks something. But later on that night on her way home, she hits something with her car. And when she gets out, she's attacked by a mysterious beast in the woods. Um, And shenanigans ensue from there. It's um, really a book about vulnerability and the struggles of existing in a body. And there's lots of humor as there is in Cackle and a lot of heart. And of course, horror. It's a werewolf book. So you're buckling up for some body horror. I cannot wait. Are you able to tell us anything about what you are currently working on? Yeah. So just this morning, I got to announce um, that I have a short story collection coming out um, also this fall. It's called Bad Dolls. It's a collection of four different stories. It's going to be released um, by Penguin Random House Audio. So it'll be audio short stories. Um, So I'm currently wrapping up edits on those stories. And uh, I'm also working on my fourth book, which that's too young to talk about. But um, it's going to exist at some point. God willing. (laughs) So exciting. Rachel, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. It was great to talk to you guys. You can find Cackle, as well as The Return, anywhere books are sold. Such Sharp Teeth is available for pre-order now. You can keep up to date with Rachel by visiting her website at www.rachel-harrison.com and by following her on Instagram at at rachelharrisonghost and on Twitter at at rachefacelogic. All links will be provided in the show notes. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please leave us a review or visit us on Instagram at at Bent Podcast and let us know. We'll see you in our next episode. Mm-hmm.